You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today, we are continuing a series that we have been in since uh, Easter, because we're still in the season of Easter, Easter Eastertide. And uh, so we've been talking about practicing resurrection, practicing resurrection, specifically talking about the different practices that um, are unique to the Christian faith in terms of how we express them and how these practices are used by God to form and shape us in Christ's likeness. So we've talked about prayer, scripture, worship, giving. Next week, we're going to finish up. I'm not going to tell you which one yet. You'll have to show up to see what we're going to talk about next week. But today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, especially on Mother's Day. Who planned this? Who planned this out? We're talking about fasting. And I just want to, first of all, say, uh, take your mother out to eat today and just, just fill yourself up with good food. I don't want you to have any guilt on Mother's Day uh, as we're talking about fasting. I don't know. Somebody else uh, plans my preaching schedule. I want you to know that. But I also want you to know, um, you know, um, I know that you think you're not going to like this sermon. And I can promise you, you're not going to hate it. All right. Uh, I think you're going to like it, actually. In fact, I think if you'll tune in uh, this morning, I think that by the end of this sermon, you'll be able to say, I think he's right. I think this is good. But uh, before we even go further, I, I just want to reemphasize something that as we're talking about all these different practices, prayer and scripture and worship and giving and fasting and so on, I, I need you to know these are not like rules and laws or anything like that. These are also not ways that we're trying to earn merit from God or anything like that. They are formational practices. The reason we pray, the reason we worship, the, re- the reason we immerse ourselves in the scriptures is simply because they are indispensable practices by which the Holy Spirit forms us in Christ's likeness. I want to be more like Jesus. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? I hope so. Well, if you want to be more like Jesus, your journey, your spiritual journey, necessarily will involve practices like these. You may not necessarily engage in it in the same exact way that I do, But you need these ancient Christian practices that are part of our rich faith tradition that the Holy Spirit has used for 2,000 years to shape Christians. And and so these are not new and modern practices. They are as ancient as the Christian faith itself. For 2,000 years, Christians have prayed and engaged with the scriptures and worshiped and and all of these types of things. Um, And over this 2,000-year history, The church of Jesus Christ has accumulated wisdom on how to go about these practices. And it would behoove you and I as 21st century modern people to glean from our spiritual ancestors in the faith and learn from their accumulated shared wisdom on how to go about these things. So these practices are not new and modern. What is new and modern is the tendency to abandon these practices and have just a very esoteric, individualized, privatized, personalized walk with Jesus, where it's just me and Jesus. 
You know, I have my own personal Jesus, as Depeche Mode once wrote. Okay, we got a few Depeche Mode fans. That's good. Um, But that's not how Christianity works. That's not how it works. We are recipients, gracious recipients of a 2,000-year-old rich faith tradition that we simply embrace and give ourselves to. Christianity is like an ocean, and we just dive in. We don't curate it according to our own personal tastes. We simply trust and embrace the tradition of 2,000 years of Christian formation, trusting the Holy Spirit is at work, and that uh, God is working through the communion of the saints. Another aspect of thinking that is very modern is to approach practices like prayer and fasting in particular as mechanisms by which I can get God to do what I think God ought to do. If you go to like a Christian bookstore today, there's an entire shelf, there's an entire genre of like charismatic books on fasting. And the whole central idea behind the book is that um, here's a way you can get God to do what you want God to do. And it's very self-centered. It's very manipulative. And that's not the way fasting should be practiced if, if our ancestors in the faith have anything to say about it. The purpose of prayer and fasting, the primary purpose of prayer and fasting is not to get God to do our bidding. The primary purpose of prayer and fasting is to be properly formed in Christian character. That's what we want. That's enough of an introduction. Let's look at our text this morning, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a childhood friend of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so our context here is a city called Antioch. There are two Antiochs in the book of Acts, so it can kind of get confusing. But this is Antioch of Syria, which will become a very, very important church in early Christianity. It's also, it happens to be the church where followers of Jesus were first given the moniker Christian in kind of a pejorative sense. Um, It's also the church that will send out the Apostle Paul for his missionary journeys and the church to which he will return. So you can kind of think of it as uh, Paul's home church. And here we have a group of teachers and prophets, leaders in the early church, who have gathered together, they're worshiping, and they're fasting. And in that context of communal worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit begins to just speak to their hearts about setting aside these two men, Barnabas and Saul, which is Paul's Hebrew name. And then when he launches out into his mission to the Gentiles, he he, uh, goes with the the more Greco-sounding name, Paul. But to set aside these two men, to commission them for a special mission. And after more prayer and fasting, they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul and send them off. Now what is fasting? Well, fasting means that, that these folks, they voluntarily didn't eat for a season. Or they didn't eat certain things. But it's a, fasting is a, voluntar, a voluntary restriction of food for spiritual purposes, not dietary purposes. They weren't on the... South Beach diet or the Atkins diet here in Acts chapter 13. 
This was, a, this was fasting as a spiritual discipline. And it's something that they inherited from their Jewish roots. You know, the Jews continued to have, and have for hundreds of years, they've had a structured tradition of fasting. And it's primarily communal. It's not just an individual thing like, I think I'm going to fast. That's not necessarily their tradition of fasting. It was a communal practice, and it wasn't just arbitrary. There was a rhythm, a calendar to their fasting. Think about like Yom Kippur as an example. And so the earliest Christians who were all Jews, I'm talking about the very earliest Christians, they simply absorbed this uh, tradition, and they Christianized it and began to practice their own Christian expression of fasting, just as they did with prayer and worship and so on. Um, but early on, the church developed its own way of fasting. And they developed two structured fasts very early. I'm talking about before the end of the first century, there were two structured Christian fasts that the early Christians practiced. Uh, the first one is called the Friday fast, where they would fast on Fridays. Now, why Fridays? Why not Mondays? Why didn't they fast on Tuesdays? What was, what was special about Friday to them. Somebody say it out loud. There you go. Guy who was here last night. All right. I, I, uh, I, I said it to the Saturday night crowd and nobody, they all thought they knew and I didn't hear it. And so Manfred was here last night, smart Alec, and he, uh, he just gave the answer. But it was the day of Christ's death on the cross, right? So their Friday fast was a weekly commemoration of Christ's crucifixion, solidifying themselves with Christ's death, just as Sunday morning worship with the saints is a weekly commemoration of what? Everybody ought to know this. Easter, resurrection, yes. So they practiced this rhythm of weekly fasting on Friday, and it was a daytime fast. You can think of it specifically within the hours of 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Why are those hours significant? Because it was within that frame of time that Christ hung on the cross. So they would practice a daytime fast on Friday as their weekly rhythm. This goes back very, very early in the church. And last year, about last year this time, somewhere around there, um, we started this practice at Village Church. We invited you to begin participating in the Friday fast. I'm not going to ask how many of you are doing it because you're supposed to do it in secret. But we invite you to participate in this rhythm. It's not something we invented. We're recovering an ancient Christian practice of fasting on Fridays. I'll say more about that in just a moment. And then the other structured fast in the rhythm of the early Christian church was uh, the Easter fast, fasting during the season leading up to Easter. And, uh, and then later on, it became known as the spring fast. And the old English word for spring is Lent. So that became known as the Lenten fast leading up to Easter. Now, when I talk about these ancient Christian fasts, especially like Lent, you know, you'll have people that hear me say that uh, sometimes, maybe not necessarily in this church, but you'll have people hear that word Lent and they'll say, oh, that's what we did back when we were Catholics, you know, and, and then some Baptists will say, uh, uh, oh, Lent, that's what comes out of the dryer. Ha ha ha. But you know, we, sometimes people look at this stuff and they just say, well, that's just dead tradition." That's just dead tradition. And if that is true, let me, let me just grant that for the sake of the point. If it's true that something like that has become dead tradition, perhaps the solution isn't to abandon it. Like we're Christians. We believe in resurrection from the dead. 
So if there are ancient Christian practices that perhaps have become dead tradition, devoid of meaning, the solution isn't to abandon them, but to recover the life and the original meaning behind them. You know, the same thing can be true of water baptism. If it's true that water baptism, for some, becomes a dead tradition, do we just abandon it? Of course not. But we recover the meaning behind it. Same thing can be true of communion. Same thing can be true of prayer. And the same thing can be true of fasting. I know this much. When I look at the scriptural record from beginning to end, cover to cover, the patriarchs are fasting. Moses is fasting. The Hebrew prophets are fasting. Jesus begins his ministry with a 40-day fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, he presumes that we're going to fast as well, and he teaches us how to do it. The apostles are fasting in the book of Acts, and the early church fasted. So if I want to be a committed, vibrant follower of Jesus, the question isn't, will I fast? That's settled. There's no debate about it. The question, though, is, how do I go about this practice of fasting? And so with that as our, our backdrop, I want to talk a little bit about that, about the how and the why of fasting. First of all, why do we fast? There are lots of reasons why we fast. But one of the things that the New Testament really brings out, especially in Paul's writings, is that if you're going to live the Christian life, there is this inherent struggle between the spirit and the flesh. You know, Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, not so willing. The flesh wants what it wants when it wants it. And so we've got to put the flesh in its place. We've got to, we got to tame it if we want to make progress spiritually. So what does that look like in the t- context of fasting? Well, ordinarily throughout the week, as I go about my day, I get hungry. So my flesh cries out, I'm hungry, feed me. So I eat breakfast and then I eat lunch and then I eat dinner. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then something happens, though. Friday comes along. And Friday, about the middle of the day, I start getting hungry again. So the flesh says, I'm hungry, feed me. And I say, no. No? Why not? Because we're fasting. Fasting? What's that? Not eating. Not eating? Well, what are we going to do? We're going to pray instead. I don't want to do that. And that's the point. We've got to subdue and subordinate the flesh to the Spirit so that the things of the Spirit begin to dominate our life. Does that make any sense? Here's another reason why we fast. David says, I humbled my soul through fasting. So if we approach approach fasting in in a a life-giving way, a healthy way, fasting has the function, I hate to use the word function, fasting has a, a... a profound influence on my soul to bring my soul to a proper place of humility before the Lord. It humbles the soul. That's why Jesus is very quick in the Sermon on the Mount to, to critique any form of fasting that arises out of the compulsion uh, for self-righteousness and pride. He says, when you fast, not if you fast, but he says, when you fast, don't make this ostentatious display of it. Like, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so famished. Well, why are you so famished? Oh, it's because I'm fasting, of course. <laughs> Jesus says, don't do that. There's no reward in that. I especially think that fasting is valuable in our own culture here in modern America. Because the real religion in America is consumerism. 
That's, that's the real pervasive religion of America is consumerism. And we are all, whether you like it or not, just by virtue of living here, we are all formed by the liturgies of advertising. And every day, every moment of the day, you and I are bombarded with messages from our culture that treat us as consumers, that this is who you are. This is your identity. This is why you exist. And if we're not careful as we absorb the consumeristic spirit of this age, we begin to perceive that our own worth and value comes from the quality and quantity of things that we buy and consume. And that's idolatrous and it's unhealthy and it's toxic to our soul. And if we rightly approach the practice of fasting, if we have a rhythm of fasting, for example, the Friday fast that we invite you to participate in, it's a weekly form of prayerful resistance against the Babylon, the idolatry of our age, saying, no, I am not a consumer. I do not exist to consume, and my worth and value does not come from the things that I own. I am a worshiper of Jesus Christ, and my worth and value is tied solely from his love for me poured out on the cross. That's what defines me. That's who I am. And I don't need anyone and anyone, anything else to contribute to that value because I have immeasurable value because Christ paid an immeasurable price. So fasting can be, if we have a rhythm of fasting, it can be a weekly statement and reinforcement of my identity. I am a worshiper, not a consumer. And so I invite you, if you're not already, I invite you to participate in this weekly Friday fast, a daytime fast. You can think of it as the noon meal, the noontime meal. And, um, and we invite you to do this. It's not a law. Nobody's forced to do this as if we could ever force you to do anything. Um, but we invite you to do this because it'll give you some structure and definition. And I love the fact that you're not doing it by yourself, but you have a whole church of people who are on the same journey and on the same rhythm, and we're doing it together. But there's another aspect to the Friday fast that I need to include with you. Not only are we going without food for that one meal a week on Friday in the middle of the day, not only are we going without food, but the other aspect of the Friday fast is we invite you to take that $10 or whatever that you would have spent, whatever it was. It could have been Campbell's soup, whatever it was. But you take whatever money you would have spent on lunch that day, and we collect it in the Friday Fast box, which is right there in the back to my right uh, on that table. You'll see the Friday Fast box. It's, box. it's got this logo on it. We also have this as a category on our online giving as well. But we collect it, and every penny of that, as it accumulates... Every penny that's collected in the Friday Fast Fund, we use it to help real people in real need, whether it's people in our church or people in our community. So over the last year, you know, we just give as needs arise, uh, but over the last year, we've been able to help people with electric bills. We've been able to help people with transportation issues. We've been able to help house uh, homeless. Um, all of that's connected to your fasting. So your fasting's not about me, myself, and I, but it's also contributing to the needs of other people, which is really what Isaiah 58 is about when God talks about the kind of fast that he delights in that's connected to justice in the world. So we encourage you to, I think it's one of the very best things we do here at Village Church. But these practices, you know, if we're serious about spiritual formation, we've got to embrace these 
ancient Christian practices that we did not invent. We just simply received them because they're for our formation. I can say it like this. Salvation liberates us from sin and Satan. How many of you can say amen to that? Salvation liberates us from sin and Satan. But listen, salvation does not liberate you from community and tradition. Instead, it invites you into new community and holy tradition. I'll show you an example of what I'm talking about in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the context here is the day of Pentecost and uh, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people from around the world are gathered in Jerusalem around the Temple Mount. And Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost, he's standing up on the southern temple steps with these thousands of Jews within earshot. And he preaches this sermon where he's announcing the gospel that Jesus is our risen king. And, uh, and so look at what it says. It kind of just sums up some of his message here in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That by itself is profound. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's interesting to me, he doesn't say, save yourselves from hell. Even though he probably could have said that. But he says distinctly, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He's saying, you are living in a culture and a society that's killing you. It's toxic to your soul. It's unhealthy. It's damaging you. It's destructive. So you need to be saved out of that. And so what do they do? They believe his message, and they're baptized, and then they're added to the church of Jesus Christ. So you could say it like this. They, they come out of this destructive, dehumanizing culture and society, and now they're saved into a redemptive life-giving, restorative society called the church of Jesus Christ. You see, you can't be saved out of something into nothing. Like you just say to yourself, man, I'm living in a very toxic, destructive culture, so I need to get saved out of this. Yes, you do need to save, be saved out of it, but you can't just exist in nothing. No, you're saved out of Babylon into the church. And in the healthy, life-giving church of Jesus Christ... We have a society, a culture with rich traditions that are designed to form and shape us. We do not invent them. We do not make it up. We simply graciously receive them and give ourselves to these rhythms that the Holy Spirit moves through. And these rhythms, these practices have a redemptive healing agenda. We're given the practice of prayer. We're given the practice of scripture and worship and giving and fasting and many others. But here's how this doesn't work. I want to be very clear about this. You don't just walk into Village Church and I just say, hi, I'm Pastor Ryan. Welcome to our church. Let me just throw a bunch of practices at you. Here's prayer, here's scripture, worship, giving, fasting. Just begin practicing these things and figure it out as you go. That's not very helpful. That would be like, imagine if I took 18 little boys who have never heard of baseball. They've never heard the word baseball. They're not familiar. They don't know the first thing about it. And I just put them in a van and we go to a big old field and I throw out a bunch of balls and bats and gloves and three bases and a home plate and I just put it all in a big pile and I say, here kids, here's everything you need to play baseball, play baseball. And I just stand back and watch. What do you think those little boys are going to do? They're going to do anything and everything but play the actual game of baseball. They may figure a few things out. They may they may figure, maybe we'll just throw this little ball around. They may even get so far as to say, what if we take this stick 
and use it to hit the ball. Maybe they'll think it's like cricket or golf or something. Or maybe the batters wear gloves or something. They'll come up with something, but whatever they come up with, it won't be baseball. Because baseball is not just a collection of equipment. You need the equipment to play. But baseball is a received tradition that you were given, that you were taught. So if I just take 18 little boys, put them on a baseball diamond, give them all the equipment, and just leave them there, there's no chance in the world on their own they're going to come up with three strikes and four balls and the infield fly rule and so on and so forth. Because baseball is a tradition that we are taught, that we receive. In the same way as Christians, we're not just given these practices and, to and told, just figure them out. That's not helpful to people. Instead, we're kind of told what to do with them. Our 2,000-year-old rich faith tradition gives us wisdom on how to go about these things. So it's not just, here, here's prayer, figure it out, talk to God. If I, if I just say talk to God, you're just going to recycle your own issues, and you're not going to get anywhere typically. But instead, it's here. Pray this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And see, if I will receive that prayer and slow down and allow these words to absorb into my heart and my soul and fill my imagination and begin to form my own spontaneous prayer to the Lord, now I'm praying well. Now I'm praying in a healthy, life-giving trajectory that actually has the capability with God's help to form me in Christ's likeness. The same thing is true with Scripture. We don't just tell people, hey, read a bunch of spiritual stuff. No, we give them a book and we say, this one's special. Read a bunch of books, that's fine. But this one, you're going to be reading your entire life. If you want to be a growing Christian, absorb this, memorize it, immerse yourself in the story of the Bible and allow it to form you as a human being. Same thing is true with worship. It's not just worship however you see fit, but we're given this 2,000-year-old rhythm of gathering together with our brothers and sisters sisters in Christ on Sunday morning for worship. Same thing with giving. We're given a 2,000-year-old practice that is the foundation of giving called the tithe. And then finally, the same is true with fasting. If I just get up here and tell you, hey, everybody, I think fasting's a good idea and you ought to fast, so just figure it out, you know how that's going to go. A lot of you are just not going to do it, right? But instead, what we're inviting you into is a rhythm and a structure of fasting that will provide some definition and formation to your spiritual growth. And if you will begin to assimilate these practices into your life, I'm telling you, man, now you're playing baseball. Now you're stealing second, hitting a triple, and buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Take me out to the ball game, all right? Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.